Good morning, everybody, and thank you to everyone for the invitation. Uh, the lecture focus this morning, we have one hour uh, to talk about dermatologic emergencies. So of course, we could talk about this for a long time. Um, I do have my email address on both the handout that I'm giving you and at the end of the talk. I highly encourage you to email me if there is a scenario that comes up and you have questions about, um, regardless of what I lecture about, I think sometimes it translates into communications later and I freely welcome that and I'm happy to help out. Of course, with all communications, photos are best uh, to, uh, to prompt the discussion. So without further ado, we have some ground to cover today. Um, I, I do have a few disclosures, none of which are relevant to the talk today, but I have spoken for a variety of companies, primarily uh, in, in, in terms of oncodermatology, specifically in terms of managing rashes due to chemotherapy. So none of these are for products I actually prescribe. <clears throat> The objectives for the talk today, identify life-threatening skin conditions, uh, hopefully those that you can recognize, hopefully those that you never see, uh, categorize the spectrum of drug eruptions, recognize the various conditions that can lead to blistering of the skin, but I think most importantly is that last line. It's to review photos. We're gonna just show lots of photos, lots of scenarios, see if this triggers a thought or a process in your mind, uh, and then talk about what to do from that. <clears throat> I'm sure this gets done a lot. I always just quickly review the Durham English Dictionary, the difference between macules and patches, which are flat, and papules and plaques, which are raised. Blisters, which we'll get into, of course, are basically bubbles in the skin, and they either have clear fluids, in which terms we term them vesicles, or they have pus, in which terms we term them pustules. Uh, larger blisters are termed bullae, and then, of course, we want to categorize those bullae as either being flaccid or tense. The shapes of lesions actually do matter. Is it linear? Is it annular, meaning ring-shaped, or numular, meaning a coin-shaped, <coughs> serpiginous, or snake-like? And then, of course, the color, which everyone knows their color palette. So we'll start with purpura. What do you do when you walk into the office and a patient comes in with purpura? Well, it could be something and it could be nothing. So let's say they look like this. What do you think? What's running through your mind? Are you worried? Are you not worried? So this is, of course, an example of vasculitis, and vasculitis is inflammation of the blood vessels. We'll step forward in a little bit to categorize the different forms of vasculitis. But I think this image is important. I think when you look at this, it's very clear that this is a systemic process. It's very clear that this is purpura, which basically means that the redness is non-blanching, and it means that red blood cells have extravasated out of blood cells. Now, it's your job to figure out why they have extravasated. In this instance, you have hunched that it is inflammatory. I think a lot of the textbooks talk about vasculitis being palpable purpura. I want to really emphasize that it does not have to be palpable. If it's palpable, great, and it goes with the textbooks, but you and I both know that many things don't read textbooks, and rashes do not read textbooks. So sometimes it'll be flat, and sometimes it'll be palpable. The way I remember vasculitis and the way I was first taught is imagining someone dipping a paintbrush in a little bit of paint and flicking it against the wall. That type of splatter of purpura uh, is hard to reproduce externally with trauma or something else. It's typically an internal process. So again, various images of vasculitis. Again, you can see that very characteristic dusky red purpuric splatter. Uh, the lower legs are most common. I think when you have inflammation around the blood vessels, that second hit is the hydrostatic pressure that we experience in our lower legs just due to gravity. And so those vessels are easier to rupture with a little bit of inflammation. 
versus the blood vessels that are higher up that have less gravitational pull and less hydrostatic pressure. So again, the approach to purpura, I think this slide is really important. This is what I highlight in your handout. There's three main scenarios in which you'll see purpura. The first is what we just talked about, which is inflammatory or vasculitis. I guess that's the second one up here. And so if you prove that it's a vasculitis, you do a vasculitis workup. Is it due to lupus? Is it an ANCA-positive vasculitis? Is it cryograbulinemia? Is it a drug history, an infection, so on and so forth? But you're going down the route of a vasculitis. If you have inflammation of the blood vessels in the skin, you may have inflammation in the blood vessels elsewhere, and the most common organ affected, if it's not the skin, would be the kidneys. So I encourage you, if you ever make the diagnosis of vasculitis, at the very least, to do a very cursory kidney evaluation, which means doing a urinalysis, and you are concerned if you see protein in the urine or if you see blood in the urine. Either would be a bad sign uh, in terms of there likely being kidney involvement if you see vasculitis. Uh, you can always do a blood test, but I will tell you that a BMP or creatinine assay is not nearly as helpful as a urinalysis. Is the kidney actually spilling blood or protein? There are instances when you get purpura and there's no inflammation involved and it's simply trauma. You have leaky blood vessels, maybe this patient's on a blood thinner, maybe this patient is sun damaged, maybe they're simply older and so their skin breaks down a little bit easier, so various blood thinners that you're aware of. But this is non-inflammatory purpura. Of course, this requires very little for you to do, but simply to recognize it and not create a bigger disease than is what really present. The last scenario is occlusive purpura. So occlusive purpura, as, as the term would imply, uh, rather than immediate destruction of the blood vessel, there is clogging of the pipes and there is backflow. And therefore, as a result, you get dusky erythema in a very different pattern, typically retiform. Uh, or reticulate, uh, and we'll show you some photos of that as well, but then this would be a very different workup. You're working up the various conditions that lead to clotting, either widespread clotting or localized clotting uh, just at the level of skin blood vessels. And I've listed a few of the various tests that are done here, antiphospholipid antibodies, again, cryo, <clears throat> depending on which setting you have it in, type one cryoglobulinemia causes occlusive vasculopathy, uh, lack of protein C or S, factor V Leiden deficiency, et cetera, et cetera. So here we have an example again of purpura. Someone walks in the office, they look like this, you look at their arms, they have purpura. We're worried, we're not worried. Now these are the thoughts that run through your mind. And so in this instance, you're not that worried. This is solar purpura, sometimes termed actinic purpura, sun-induced purpura. <clears throat> it takes decades to acquire this amount of sun damage and yet people successfully do this all the time and we see that all the time. So the areas that are sun damaged, namely the tops of the arms and the tops of the hands, the dermis thins, there's a lot more space for those blood vessels to shear. It takes very little trauma, and then we see purpura. Of course, if patients are on blood thinners, we see this a lot more commonly. But when you look at these patients, you'll see that you rarely see this type of purpura on the abdomen or on the thighs or the areas that are far less sun damaged. It's the areas that get beat up over a lifetime. So we're not worried about these. This used to be called senile purpura. Of course, that's just not a nice term, so we don't use that anymore. Are we worried? Are we not worried? See purpura around the abdomen. Obviously, this person's tubed and with a hospital gown on, so this is not a good sign. So this is an example of Cullen's sign. This is what we see with retroperitoneal hemorrhage. This is an extremely bad sign, most commonly seen with pancreatic inflammation, either in the setting of chronic pancreatitis or cancer. But your goal is to understand that this is simply, nevertheless, non-inflammatory purpura. And I highlight this because you know, when we talk about non-inflammatory purpura, we always think of trauma and it's no big deal. But it could be a big deal. It's just not the purpura itself that's the problem. This is not vasculitis. 
and this is not occlusive, but this is still traumatic purpura, but signifying a bigger internal systemic disease process. Purpura. Are we worried? Are we not worried? And so these are the thoughts that run through your mind. And here you'd be worried. This is an example of meningococcemia, reticulate, large, retiform purpura. Typically with meningococcemia, the purpura tends to appear quickly. So it starts very incidentally, like what you see in the upper uh, photo, and then it progresses within 24 to 36 hours into larger, these geometric stellate purpuric patches. Obviously patients don't feel well, they're febrile, and their demise is rather quick. So quick recognition of this is of vital importance. They typically need to get antibiotics immediately, and you can save their life. Purpura. Small petechiae on the hands, both volar and dorsal aspects. Are you worried? Are you not worried? Does this help you? So this is an example of Rocky Mountain Sided Fever. Of course, this is a tick-borne illness uh, leading to petechiae. The pattern in which we see petechiae with Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever tends to start at the end, so it tends to start distally and then spread centrally. So the hands and the feet are affected first, and then the petechiae spread centrally. This is a tough disease to diagnose uh, unless you have the suspicion, unless you have a history of there being some exposure to tick or a tick prevalent area. Uh, the testing that's required to confirm Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever typically takes about two to three weeks. So of course you don't have that type of time. So those tests currently are primarily for the purpose of confirming your clinical suspicion, but you're not waiting for the test uh, before you treat. The treatment of most tick-borne illnesses is doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice daily for a few weeks. So that's a fairly benign therapy as we use these types of therapies all the time for acne. So I think your suspicion doesn't have to be that high to enact treatment, but again, you can save this patient a lot of misery in the process. Retiform purpura down the right leg. Again, a different photo on the left. Worried, not worried. <clears throat> so this is an example of occlusive vasculopathy. Um, I think it's really important to see that pattern. I, the, the pattern of the, well, you said I have a better laser pointer, sorry. The pattern of the retiform, eh, you can see it. Anyway, so on the, on the bottom right leg, it's net-like, it's fish-like, it's really dusky. You can get the sense that it's not just one vessel that's damaged, but rather the entire tree, the entire branching uh, out of the vessels being destroyed. And so there is some occlusion proximal to that. Um, again, with occlusive vasculopathies, depending on which vessel is involved, you can see it higher up. Calciphylaxis or medium vessel vasculitis tend to perform uh, and present with nodules, oftentimes affecting higher vessels, so you may see ulceration in the thighs or the abdomen. But with small vessel occlusion, which is the most, you know, most common, you're still gonna see it distal because those are the smallest vessels and the easiest ones to occlude. <clears throat> okay, so we're gonna change gears. I, I, I just wanna remind everyone, this is hard. Um, these are emergencies. We hope to not see this. We definitely hope to not see this very often. And I'm primarily doing this to stimulate thought, stimulate discussion. I know it's early in the morning, and hopefully you guys have got a little bit into your coffee for this to process. But if you guys have questions along the way or at the end, feel free to answer it. I've given this talk in a variety of manners before, so you're not going to interrupt me. <clears throat> We're going to change gears to blisters. So again, just a quick one-second review. The variety of blisters we see could be small and filled with clear fluid, in which case we call them vesicles. They could be filled with pus, in which case we call them pustules. They could be small or they could be large. And if we do see large bullae, 
uh, it's helpful to identify those bullae as being flaccid or tense. And this gives you some clinical uh, suspicion on what the disease process is and where the damage is being done in the skin. Okay, so sores on the upper lips, on the right sore on the lower lip. Are we worried, are we not worried? And I will tell you pretty much every photo I'm going to show you right now at one time has been a consult from the hospital saying, we think this person has TEN. And what that tells me is they just don't understand what TEN is, but they see blisters and they worry. And so it's our job to separate those things. So this is an example of an aptus ulcer, which of course we have seen, many of us have experienced, no one likes getting them, but they're not dangerous. They're painful, they're typically due to trauma, occasionally evoked by stress, but the treatment, if you choose to treat, is typically with topical steroids, but many times this resolves on its own. But there are a variety of aptus ulcerations. There are minor aptus ulcerations or canker sores, which we're most familiar with. These describe these ulcerations that are less than one centimeter in size. Typically, these are idiopathic, like I said. You can see this with an underlying uh, herpes infection. But these are in huge contradistinction to major aptus ulcerations, which are much deeper and much larger, typically larger than one centimeter, and it's the major aptus ulcerations that we associate with the underlying inflammatory diseases. The, probably the most common that I see walk into my clinic now is in the setting of HIV. Uh, patients who have poorly controlled HIV oftentimes have extremely painful <coughs> aptus ulcerations. It's actually one of the indications for the use of thalidomide. You also see this in the setting of inflammatory bowel disease, Bichette's disease, which many people think they diagnose, but is really rare to diagnose, especially in central United States. This is much more common in the Middle East. Periodic fevers, cyclic neutropenia, and so forth. But a large aptus ulceration, especially persistent large aptus ulcerations, should make you uh, delve a little bit deeper into their systemic illness. Vesicles, many of them, all together, erythematous base, upper lip. Are we worried, are we not worried? Again, the theme throughout is, is this TEN? And of course, this is not TEN, this is herpes. Again, we've seen this many times. We make this diagnosis likely weekly, group vesicles, erythematous base, I get it, garden variety. Scattered pustules, close up, vesicles, different stages, some erythematous, some not erythematous. Are we worried, are we not worried? So this is an example of VZV infection. This is varicella. This is primary varicella. This patient is older, happens to be HIV positive, of course, in a younger patient. Uh, we say this all the time. Many, or many of the people in the room today probably had primary varicella when they were children, as did I. Shortly after I was a child, everyone started getting vaccinated, and we just don't see primary varicella as often. And that probably has repercussions in terms of the incidence of when we see zoster and how early we see zoster, because the immunity does vary. And I think as they optimize vaccine schedules and even optimize vaccine booster schedules for varicella, that'll probably change. But there was a window of time where we started seeing zoster at much, much earlier ages. But if you see primary varicella, never had chickenpox before in an adult, I think you at least inquire about immunosuppression. Um, disseminated zoster looks very similar uh, to primary varicella, so obviously having that history is important. Uh, primary varicella in an adult is much more likely to cause lung damage and it's much more likely to cause liver damage than it would in any child. So that uh, search needs to be done as well. So checking LFTs and checking a chest x-ray. So again, this is the much more typical VZV infection that we're accustomed to seeing, group erythematous vesicles down a dermatome. And of course, this is shingles, also termed herpes zoster. 
And for just a quick second, I think it's worth separating herpes simplex from herpes zoster. I think we all understand this when it comes to textbooks or testing. But in the heat of practice, I've seen many, many people make errors just separating the two. You look at it, I think it's herpes zoster. I did the herpes test, and the herpes test is negative. Well, did you do the herpes test, or did you do the herpes zoster test? And so I think we use these terms because it's the correct term, but we can confuse ourselves. So understanding that one is HSV1 or herpes virus 1, the other being herpes virus 2 or varicella zoster virus. The difference, of course, is herpes is recurrent. It can keep happening. It tends to happen in three main sites, although it could be anywhere around the mouth, around the genitals, or around the sacrum uh, or upper buttocks. Those are the three most common sites that you'll see herpes simplex. But recurrence is the rule. Whereas with shingles, you should only get shingles once in your life. You know, you, you get your primary varicella infection either with vaccine or infection, and it takes decades for that immunity to fade. And then you get a recurrence of that infection, but that, of course, is down one dermatome. It should take another multiple decades for that to occur again. So when someone says, I get shingles every year, they either have HIV, they're on chemotherapy, or they're wrong. <clears throat> no one gets shingles every year unless it's one of those three scenarios. Blisters, fine. Fine, small, clear blisters on the surface of the skin. Are we worried? Are we not worried? So we're not worried. This is miliaria, superficial occlusion of the eccrine ducts. You get these very fine, uh, can almost flick them off uh, with your fingers. We tend to see this in patients that are overheated, oftentimes seen in a hospital setting, but can be seen as outpatients, especially in younger children. Um, miliaria comes in three main forms, depending on what level the eccrine duct is blocked. Uh, the superficial version is what I just showed you. That's miliaria crystallina. Miliaria rubra is probably the most common form of miliaria that we will see. It's a typical heat rash. Uh, again, more common in babies. We see it underneath the neck, um, especially when they're younger and they don't quite have uh, a neck yet because their, their chubby necks and, and, and chest meet together. You also see this in the hospital setting. Again, when patients are laying on their back for hours or days uh, at a time, um, and there's just occlusion of the sweat glands there. So again, examples of both adult and childhood miliaria rubra. So we're not worried, but this just requires recognition saying, I know what this is, don't worry about it. Big blister on the top of the foot. Are we worried, are we not worried? Again, every single one of these is, I think this patient has TEN. And so we're not worried. This is basically edema bullet. I think you can appreciate that the toes are a little puffy. You tend to see edema bullet with rapid onset edema. I think those that have chronic stasis changes, you tend to not see this, but those that have immediate or quick evolving edema, the skin doesn't have time to stretch, and in some areas the skin ruptures. So probably the most common setting would be acute renal failure or congestive heart failure, flares. Uh, but any setting where you get rapid onset edema, uh, you could very well clearly see this. And we don't worry about it. It's non-inflammatory. It means very little, short of the fact that the patient is experiencing rapid onset edema. Okay. So we're gonna to switch to some of the autoimmune bullous diseases. This is an example of pemphigus vulgaris. Obviously, the nature and the appearance of these blisters are very different than what I showed you before. Again, not TEN, uh, but something that we don't wanna have. And I think with pemphigus vulgaris, what we see is very superficial blisters in the epidermis. It's within the epidermis rather than below, and so these blisters tend to be flaccid. Uh, before the advent of prednisone, this basically killed 90% of patients since the advent of prednisone. This is a disease that has high morbidity but not necessarily high mortality. 
Uh, mouth involvement is virtually universal, extremely common, and the major source of morbidity. So if you approach someone and there's a thought that runs through your mind that they have pemphigus vulgaris or that they have some autoimmune bullous disease, I think a biopsy is of course helpful, but the other thing is to get a direct immunofluorescence. And, and just as a review, remember that we send this in two different specimen containers, formalin for the <clears throat> primary biopsy, the typical H&E evaluation, but then the Michelle solution or even saline, depending on what lab you work with, would be appropriate for them to do a direct immunofluorescence. There is blood confirmatory testing that you can do both in the setting of an indirect immunofluorescence if you have a lab that'll work with you to do that, or you can send out an ELISA test for the specific antigens for the specific disease. But then again, if you guess wrong, it could be an autoimmune bullous disease, but you just picked the wrong ELISA. So I think this is the right place to start, and then you can do follow-up testing to confirm if need be. With pemphigus vulgaris, you will see blistering, again, within the epidermis. And so again, I think you can see the cleft right above the basal layer of the epidermis. Uh, and then this classic fishnet pattern, the antibodies with uh, a patient who has pemphigus vulgaris basically line every cell uh, within the epidermis. And so you get this fishnet pattern on direct immunofluorescence seeing where the antibodies are laying. And so I think it explains the clinical phenotype of the disease uh, that we see if we see this patient. <clears throat> and of course, in direct contrast to the other major autoimmune bullous disease that we like to discuss when we talk about pemphigus, we talk about the other one that forms tense blisters. Uh, which is bullous pemphigoid, also with an inflammatory base, but I think you can appreciate the different quality in blisters. Bullous pemphigoid occurs more commonly. It is far less deadly, causes more morbidity, it's extremely itchy, and it tends to affect our older patients, but again, it's not deadly. So in contrast to pemphigus vulgaris, we don't see a fishnet, but we see lining of the immunoglobulins along the basement membrane, so the deposition of antibodies, the deposition of our autoimmunity and the targets of our autoimmunity are at a different level, and therefore the split being beneath the epidermis causes a tense blister, whereas with pemphigus, it's within the epidermis, so it causes a flaccid blister. Okay, you got two patients, one in one room, one in the other. Which one of these is TN? The patient on the left or the patient on the right? Both, neither. So ask yourself that question and we'll go through. So let's say one patient has this and only this on her hands. And you can see target-like lesions, central necrosis, some are blistering, and we would call this EM, or erythema multiforme. Uh, oftentimes associated uh, with an oral herpes breakout. Again, you can see a close-up of the target lesions. And I just frequently will lecture about the fact it, it was about 25 years ago that we had the belief that erythema multiforme was the same thing as Stevens-Johnson's, about 25 years ago. So there is erythema multiforme minor, and then there is Stevens-Johnson's. And erythema multiforme is not Stevens-Johnson's, will never become Stevens-Johnson's, and should not be considered in the same family of Stevens-Johnson's. And this has been reported again and again. This is probably the last, or I'm sorry, the first big review to highlight that in 1995. Uh, but I say this because this is frequently still a discussion that I have with practitioners about once a year explaining this to them. Okay, so that was simply erythema multiforme due to herpes simplex virus. Here was one of the images I showed you. Do we think this is TEN? Yes, no, ask yourself internally. So this is staph scalded skin. And staph scalded skin basically is a disease where you will see very fine superficial blistering of the top layers of the skin. And 
And obviously there's an underlying staph infection, but if you culture the erosions or the denudation here, it will be culture negative. Because the pathology is that there is a staph infection somewhere, but that particular staph bacteria releases a toxin. And that toxin becomes widespread throughout the bloodstream. It goes to stomach. And elsewhere, that toxin cleaves the top layer of skin. It cleaves the granular layer in the epidermis, so you get this superficial sloughing. It's most commonly seen in flexures, so the creases of the neck, the creases of the armpits. But what's very important to visualize here is just how darn normal the lips look. Everyone look at their lips and see how normal they look. You will never, ever, ever see a patient with Stevens-Johnson or never, ever, ever see a person with toxic epidermal necrolysis who has normal lips. So if they're sloughing and peeling and blistering, but their lips look this normal, they don't have TEN. So you get superficial sloughing due to a toxin from a staph infection elsewhere. Patients most likely to get staph scalded skin are those that have poor kidney function. So either adults with kidney disease or children with immature kidneys. So pretty much after the age of about six, you won't see this in healthy individuals unless they have renal disease, because it is those patients that cannot clear the toxin. You may have the infection, and you may have the toxin, but your kidney gets rid of it quickly, unless they don't work, and the toxin accumulates, and then you get the sloughing. So patients typically actually feel pretty good. Obviously, you give them the appropriate antibiotics, specifically those that target the ribosomes, so tetracyclines, clindamycin, macrolides, because it's the ribosomes that form proteins, and this toxin's a protein, so you can diminish the development of that. But again, this is a fairly benign, but sometimes concerning look. Okay, next patient. Injected conjunctiva, look at her lips, look at her skin. Are we worried, are we not worried? You look closer, you can see some target lesions. So this is an example of Stevens-Johnson, and this is probably the worst labeled disease um, of late because the actual disease name is the Stevens-Johnson's Toxic Epidermal Necrolysis Syndrome. I can't even say that once, let alone three times. This started as two separate diseases, and over time we basically just realized it's the same thing. We're just talking about a spectrum of the same disease. In this disease, you will have at least two mucous membranes involved, but again, I just want to hammer home, the lips will look horrible. Um, and so look at their lips. If their lips look horrible, then your suspicion can go up to at least consider this. Stevens-Johnson's is less than 10% of the body surface area. Toxic epidermal necrolysis is greater than 30% of body surface area. If it's in between, it is the overlap syndrome of Stevens-Johnson's TEM. And when we say involved area, we mean redness or blisters. If they are a sheet of red, like this lady was, but everything has not sloughed off yet, it's involved, and that's relevant. And the reason we want to identify is it has a huge impact on prognosis, depending on how much body surface area is involved. Primarily, the cause of these syndromes is drug. You will occasionally see viral triggers, such as herpes, or other infectious triggers, such as mycoplasma, more often in children with just Stevens-Johnson's. But if they have full-blown TEN, it is undoubtedly a drug culprit. So you avoid the offending drug. A lot of supportive care is necessary. It takes time for these patients to get better. And then in terms of treatments, there's a litany of arguments that can be done. I will tell you that no one um, is going to say something without being criticized there. So again, target lesions, hemorrhagic mucositis, Stevens-Johnson syndrome. More widespread diffuse, blistering, full body erythema, skin's gonna start sloughing. I'll show you some photos for those that are eating, take a break. 
Um, and just the evolution, it takes about three weeks for the skin to turn over. So you will not make this person better in a day or in a week, it's gonna take some time. And you can just see the evolution of TN as we follow this guy out. He gets better and he walks out of the ICU, no problem. But it takes time for the skin to regenerate and it takes a fair amount of supportive care. So just understanding the evolution of this disease and understanding that you know, in dermatology, it's really hard to be patient because we have very few diseases that demand this type of patience day to day, but this is one of them. Okay, again, we talked about the importance of knowing how much skin is involved because it has a direct correlation on prognosis. The score 10 uh, was a scale that was released over 10 years ago in the JID, uh, still has considerable value. There are seven prognostic factors. How old is the patient? Is there an underlying cancer? How much body surface area is involved? So on and so forth. And depending on how uh, they rate on this scale, it has a direct effect on their prognosis. <clears throat> okay. So we'll move to the other fairly significant life-threatening drug reaction that we're seeing more and more of of late called DRESS. Uh, in the older literature, this was called the hypersensitivity syndrome, not a hypersensitivity dermatitis, but the hypersensitivity syndrome. It's now called DRESS, or drug rash with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms. Um, there's a few different criteria that are used to diagnose a patient with DRESS, but there are a few universal factors that we'll discuss. So unlike a typical drug rash where you get a measles or morbilliform-like eruption that typically appears a week or so after a drug exposure, and unlike TN, which also appears fairly acutely, dress takes a long time to present, anywhere from one to eight weeks, but on average, three weeks after starting the drug is when it appears because the pathology and the problem with dress is that there's a buildup of the metabolite, so not the drug itself, but your body's inability to break down the drug and so that toxic metabolite builds up, and it takes some time for the buildup. So there is a delay to presentation. The other huge clinical sign that you will see in a patient with dress is edema. It's, the rash is not specific, but they will be swollen. Their hands are swollen, their face is swollen, but there will be edema, and there will be a delay from the onset of the drug. So here's a patient that we had. You can see the rash on the right is not that impressive. It's not specific at all, fairly urticarial, faint, pink, erythematous, whatever you want to use, but nothing you're going to say is going to make me remember this as being different than another rash. But the edema of this guy's face was fairly striking. So the criteria for dress, again, the rash is somewhat nonspecific. Uh, most patients will have a fever. Most patients will have lymphadenopathy, but then they will have systemic findings. So this, of course, requires us to look um, obviously, as the name would imply, one of the more common features that we see is eosinophilia. Some patients have normal eosinophils, but instead have an abnormal uh, lymphocytosis or atypical lymphocytes. I will tell you, if you rely on your CBC with diff only, they may not comment on a lymphocytosis, but they rather would comment on a monocytosis because the machines will read monocytes very similar to how they read atypical large lymphocytes. So if there is a peak of monocytes, a peak of lymphocytes, or a peak of eosinophils, that's noteworthy. And typically when we see these patients, you know, they have at least a 10% eosinophilia or higher with normal being 5% or lower. So it's a significant uptake, and we've seen it up to 40 or 50%. And then they oftentimes can have systemic involvement 
affecting the liver or the kidney. And you know, if you take your typical AST or ALT, where the upper limit of normal is somewhere between 50 or 60, depending on what lab you use, we've seen levels as high as 1,500 or 2,000. So these patients can have fulminant liver failure. But without the right suspicion, you might have another doctor thinking they're having liver failure from another reason. So understanding that a simple drug like Bactrim or allopurinol could cause that is important. So that is acute. And then there are delayed systemic findings as well. And this is the importance of this disease probably more than anything else. This is a different criteria, but again, you can see they cover the same things. One was the original criteria by the lead authors who described this syndrome. This is the criteria used by the Registrar database. The Registrar database is the registry for severe cutaneous adverse reactions. This is still ongoing, primarily done in Europe, to collect all patients who have this eruption to better categorize it. So to be able to submit your patient to be part of this database, they have to fulfill this criteria for them to incorporate them as a dress patient. But again, it's virtually the same thing we talked about. About a month after someone has dressed, they will have considerable retention hyperkeratosis. The skin just does not slough off for some reason. And again, here's an example of a patient in our clinic about a month after the eruption. Um, there's nothing to really do. You can tell them to put emollients. You can tell them to do nothing, because this will all slough off. But it's just knowing that this is normal about a month after a patient presents with dress. But more important are the delayed autoimmune findings. I think for just a second, if you can imagine that your immune system gets so revved up uh, because of this type of toxicity, you can understand that sometimes the immune system, when being so revved up, starts to target the wrong things. And so the major autoimmune sequelae that we see in many patients with dress affect the thyroid. So you'll get a delayed hypothyroidism. Uh, it can affect the pancreas, so we will see new type 1 autoimmune diabetes in patients who have had dress. And I've also had patients die uh, with cardiac uh, disease, eosinophilic myocarditis, uh, up to six months later. So these findings are delayed anywhere from three to six months after the resolution of the eruption. So again, it just requires some suspicion. We see more and more of this of late. I don't know if it's the drugs or the patients, um, but there's something up with this, or we're just starting to recognize it. Okay, take a breath, we'll shift gears again. Category is called antibiotic stat, I think. So the question is, do you really need antibiotics? Yes, no. What do you think? So this is an example for those that are native to the area of a brown recluse spider bite. Uh, has a very characteristic red, white, and blue appearance, central necrosis, and then peripheral pallor. Uh, Again, the brown recluse spider bite, uh, common in many locations, but I think everybody in Missouri has this in their basement. Uh, most characteristic is this upside down violin on the back of the spider. And you'll be surprised at how many patients bring in their spider uh, to show you what was in their basement. Do you think this mattered? Yes, sir. I do think this mattered. So management is primarily supportive. I think the role of antibiotics is controversial. I think the role of steroids is controversial. I think as long as it's a localized reaction, uh, supportive care is fine, and, and they will get better. If, however, there is spread of the toxin, you can see systemic side effects where you'll see effects on anemia and also on renal function. Uh, this, of course, is widespread loxosalism, which is fairly rare. And in this instance, we typically recommend treatments with either prednisone or dapsone. Okay, antibiotics, yes or no? So that other image got skewed, I guess this, but anyway, it's a solitary pustule, and then you can see it develop into this ulceration. So this, of course, is an example of pyoderma gangrenosum. 
again, you see this large, smelly, not so attractive ulcer on the leg. I don't think it's unreasonable to look at something like this and say, this must be infected. You need antibiotics. And in fact, that's a very helpful story for us when patients come in having received antibiotics for one month or three months or six months or three years, all of which has happened, um, and the ulcer doesn't get better. And then you say, well, maybe, just maybe, this isn't an infection. So pyodermic gangrenosum is painful, but it's a diagnosis of exclusion. And 50% of the time, there is an underlying diagnosis, which of course means 50% of the times it's idiopathic. And so if the patient already has a history of inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatoid arthritis or cancer or something else that we see associated with pyodermic gangrenosum, that's helpful. If they come in with the classic story of is it started like a small pustule and then it's slowly but surely enlarged in this ulceration, that's helpful but sometimes it's not always so helpful, so it requires some suspicion. And you could look at that and think it is an infection, so it's okay to culture. You could look at that and say, maybe it's a cancer, it's okay to biopsy, or it's vasculitis, or it's a venous stasis ulcer. And I think all those things are good things to consider and work through, but when those things don't pan out, then you have to kind of jump back and say, maybe, just maybe, it's something else. And that's typically how this disease gets diagnosed, short of those that see this all the time. A different type, yet related, uh, dermatosis is this, where you see large, juicy red plaques. Again, pustules, you can see crusting over here on her cheeks. If you look close uh, to, to the inset, you can see that pustular nature of this nodule. Infection, not infection. Antibiotics, yes, no. Of course, this is a leading category. And so, no, this is an example of sweet syndrome, also termed acute febrile neutrophilic dermatosis. So both pyoderma gangrenosum and sweet syndrome are the cardinal two diagnoses in the neutrophilic dermatoses. And neutrophilic dermatoses are, of course, rashes that have a flood of neutrophils, which means they have pus. And this is the big leap for many clinicians to look at something that has this much pus and to not give antibiotics. And if you need to, and there's a lot of pus, culture it, because it'll be negative. Uh, and you can culture it again, and it'll be negative. Well, it must be. I biopsied it. There's a lot of neutrophils. The pathologist said, suspicious for infection given this many neutrophils, and they stained it up and down, and they told you to do tissue cultures, and it's negative. And so this happens, and it's okay. But at some point, you'll, you'll have to think about the fact that it could be a sterile neutrophilic dermatosis. I'll pause for a second. I always ask, does anybody in the room ever have acne? Just me? Okay, a few others. Okay. So this is always the example I give to other clinicians when they refer to me. You know, acne is our classic sterile pustular dermatosis. At no point have we ever seen our patients come in with acne and put gloves on because we're afraid to touch the acne because we're af afraid about contagi contagious risk. Uh, we never tell them to avoid talking to family members or little children because you have acne. So we see sterile pus all the time. We just don't always think about it. So sweet syndrome, similar to pyoderma gangrenosum, has underlying medical conditions that can be associated. The most common that we're worried about is cancer, although that's not the most common association. The other inflammatory conditions you can see have some overlap with pyoderma gangrenosum. The treatment is steroids. I'll give you an example here. This lady uh, came to our hospital after two and a half years of antibiotics and debridement, both oral and IV. Again, this is a dorsal hand neutrophilic dermatosis. Some people term this atypical sweets. And some people term this atypical PG, and it makes very little difference what you call it. It's a dorsal hand neutrophilic dermatosis. Here's another lady that you can see who for years uh, was uh, imperfectly treated for an infection, but with steroids and dapsone, you can see slow but uh, impressive resolution 
just by thinking of the right condition. So you can definitely help these patients and save them a considerable amount of morbidity, but again, just recognizing what's going on. Okay, antibiotics, yes or no? Well, yes, but probably not for the reasons that you know, other clinicians may use it. So this, of course, is hidradenitis separativa, uh, where we see these deep, again, sterile, pustular nodules, uh, sterile abscesses, tending to affect uh, apocrine heavy sites, uh, so axilla, groin, buttocks, inframammary, um, and it sometimes the creases of the flanks. It's a sterile inflammatory condition. It's a considerably morbid condition, causes a lot <coughs> of angst for these patients. There is no cure, uh, but there are treatments. We oftentimes use tetracyclines for their anti-inflammatory purposes, Bactrim for its anti-inflammatory purposes. TNF blockade, surgery, intralesional catalog, but nothing is curative. We simply have things that are palliative. Um, as an aside, I mean, we're studying this right now. We have a, about 1,100 patients that we've uh, studied over the last 15 years, just trying to find some sort of genotype, phenotype association. Uh, but I think with time, we will figure this disease out more and be a little bit better at the therapies we use. But for right now, you know, just encouraging these patients to understand what they have. INDs are not necessary when they get their inflammatory nodules. They're not abscesses, but they're rather just you know, acute inflammatory episodes of their underlying diseases. So intralesional catalog is just as effective and far less morbid than an IND and packing and many of the things that these patients go through if they see other practitioners. Okay, we're getting there. So they need what? Really? You look at this lady's breast. Antibiotics, six months, not helping. Are we worried, are we not worried? You look closer. So of course the ulceration is what sticks out, but when you look closer you can see that there is a rash or there is a process underlying the erosions. There's these fine red papules almost conglomerating into a plaque. Uh, and so this you know, ended up being breast cancer. If you look at her CT, uh, done essentially three days later, not being a radiologist, you can see lots of white nodules in the lungs. I think all, everyone in the room knows that that's not good. Uh, you look at her PET CT, you can see inflammation of not only the breast, but of the spine. Um, and so this lady unfortunately died a few weeks later of metastatic breast cancer. But I think you have to have this level of suspicion when your standard therapies don't work uh, and think about other things that could affect that site. We look at this patient who has these purpuric papules along the eyelids. Uh, similar image in the lower right, and then you can see this enlarged tongue. Normal, not normal. So this is an example of amyloidosis, systemic amyloidosis, where you will see macroglossia, and then also pinch purpura, or purpuric plaques along the eyelids. Um, I, again, another example of macroglossia, you can see that most people, their tongue was made to fit in their mouth, but when it looks like their tongue does not fit in their mouth, and you have these teeth indentations on the tongue, that's abnormal. Something, either your mouth has shrunk or your tongue has grown, and obviously the tongue has probably grown here. So the reason we see the pinch purpura with amyloidosis is you get deposition of these antibodies within blood vessels with a Valsalva or a simple strain. Uh, those blood vessels can rupture. Obviously the eyelids being thin-skinned are one of the easiest sites for those vessels to rupture, and so patients will oftentimes present with this. I see a lot of cancer, that's what I do, so some of this is sort of leading towards that, but I figured since I have the chance to talk to you, we'll focus on some of these things. So surgery was done. You can see that it didn't heal properly. We still have this rash along the side of the surgery for some time. 
topical oral antibiotics are not alleviating the condition. So this is an example of a solitary plasmocytoma. I think the type of cancer makes very little difference, but I think we can see that this is not eroded, this is not a pustule, but rather this is a solid nodule or a collection of nodules around that site. So we have to think of things that cause solid nodules, not fluid-filled collections. And biopsy confirmed that. Violaceous plaques on the skin, in the palate. Are we worried? Are we not worried? So we don't like these. We don't like to see these. And especially when you see it in the mouth, you'll want to think of HIV. This is an example of Kaposi sarcoma. Uh, it's a vascular sarcoma, vascular tumor. Uh, for most patients uh, that are not immunocompromised, specifically patients that don't have HIV, it tends to affect the uh, skin only. But for those with HIV, this can become a systemic disease. So you'll see it in the mouth, not uncommonly. And then also visceral involvement, typically involving the GI tract. Um, they not only require antiretroviral therapy, but typically require systemic chemotherapy. Kaposi sarcoma is caused by human herpes virus 8. There are four main settings in which we see it. I think the days of commonly seeing just the elderly Jewish or elderly Mediterranean male um, on the lower extremities with a little bit of leg edema has passed. We see far more capacities in the setting of underlying HIV. Um, the other two scenarios, not as often. Red scaly plaques on the buttocks, widespread over the trunk. The eczema therapies just aren't working. We think of something else. So this is cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, also termed mycosis fungoides, which I've always thought is a funny term. You know, why do we call it mycosis fungoides? This is why we call it mycosis fungoides. This is why we call it fungus fungus. Because originally when it was described, patients always presented late stage with these large fungating tumors. So for those wondering, mycosis fungoides being the most common form of CTCL. But again, originally now we'll see it a lot more of these persistent, non-healing, red scaly plaques. And this, of course, is a form of cancer. Here's an example of erythroderma in the setting of mycosis fungoides. And the leonine facies, where you'll see this prominent uh, change in architecture on the face, matarosis, where they get loss of eyebrows. <clears throat> the only other setting in which you'll see this type of facies or leonine facies is typically systemic leprosy. Okay. So again, like I said, it's a different world in oncology. We're getting close to the end here. I just want to share some cases, uh, given that I see cancer patients on a daily basis. So, palmar erythema, morbilliform eruption, looks like a drug rash. The significance, uh, however, of this with graft-for-sos disease is the palmar involvement. So when you see someone, obviously, who's had a bone marrow transplant, but who has erythema on the palms, erythema on the soles, or erythema of the head or scalp, your suspicion for graft-for-sos disease should go through the roof. And I tell you this because if you see anybody with a bone marrow transplant, both the oncologist or any other practitioner will say, you got this, it's probably graft-for-sos disease. It could be a SEB, it could be acne, it could be anything. But if they've had a bone marrow transplant, everybody worries about graft-for-sos disease. But of course, not everything is graft-for-sos disease. It could be other things as well. So, but when they have this look, it is very typical for acute graft-for-sos disease. It looks like a drug rash, but it affects the hands, the feet, and the face. Again, other examples, the eruption itself on the trunk is fairly nonspecific. Later involvement uh, with graft-for-sos disease has many phenotypes. The two most common is one that resembles lichen planus and the other that resembles scleroderma. And whether that's lichen sclerosis or morphia or full-blown progressive systemic sclerosis or even other sclerosing conditions such as eosinophilic fasciitis, it is in the sclerodermoid family. 
So here you have some examples of sclerodermoid graft versus host disease. You can see the rippling along the abdomen, the lack of ability to extend the arm completely due to the contractures in the antecubital fossa, and then of course breakdown of the skin uh, due to uh, persistent disease. It used to be that we separated acute graft versus host disease from chronic graft versus host disease simply based on the time of transplant. Was it before 100 days or after 100 days? That has long been outdated. That's almost a decade old now. Rather, now we base it on the clinical phenotype only. So you can have acute graft versus disease later. You can have chronic graft versus host disease early. And this has to do with the variety of regimens that we have before patients get their transplants. Uh, the fact that they get donor lymphocyte infusions along the way, it's just much more complicated now. So acute, acute graft-versus-host disease has a maculopapular rash or morbilliform rash and a variety of other features, whereas chronic can have a variety of clinical phenotypes. Like I said, the two most common would be lichen planus-like or scleroderma-like. Another cancer patient that has these dusky purpuric spots, palms, soles disseminated throughout. This is an example of fungemia. So systemic fungal infection, be very wary of your immunosuppressed patients. So anybody who's had a bone marrow transplant or another organ transplant, simple things can become big things. Again, another patient, you can see these disseminated. The only reason to have the same spot on the right hand and the left foot is because whatever it is we're dealing with is in the blood. And so there are a few uh, typical opportunistic uh, fungal organisms that will invade the blood vessels, candida, fusarium, mucromycosis, aspergillus, the four most common that we'll see, uh, but you can see under the microscope that they are invading the blood vessels. Uh, both the patients I showed you died within a week. Okay, and we're gonna finish up with the cooties. <clears throat> so, crusted plaques on the finger, and then you can see this very characteristic spread up the arm. So this is sporothrix schenkii, uh, and this is called sporotrichoid spread, so you have a isolated infection, usually at the distal extremity, typically the hand, and then this characteristic spread of the infection up the arm along the lymphatics. Uh, there are many other infections that have sporotrichoid spread. It's not just sporothrix. Atypical mycobacterium is a common one, um, so on and so forth. So we won't go through the list <coughs> since I can show you. <coughs> Excuse me. Another example here, you see these hemorrhagic pustules overlying a joint. Are we worried? Are we not worried? Is there anywhere else you would look on their body if you saw this? You know, an area that we don't always offer to look at, so you'd look at their genitals and you'd see this discharge. So this is an example of systemic gonococcemia. Hemorrhagic pustules overlying a joint. So these patients will obviously have the characteristic urethral discharge, uh, but when it goes systemic, they'll sometimes complain of joint pains, and if you look, they'll have these very discreet hemorrhagic pustules over the joint. It's amazing what you'll see on the genitals if you look. Uh, patients will not offer, and practitioners don't always offer either, but for those that do, it's amazing what you'll see in terms of disease states. Keeping on that line, erosions over the genitals, these copper pennies over the acral sites here over the soles. So this is syphilis, uh, painless chancre on the left, primary syphilis. Uh, characteristic copper pennies on the right, on the palms and the soles. When you look at the copper pennies, uh, or whatever you want to call these lesions, you'll see, if you look at your hands, you'll see your skin lines. These copper pennies never cross the skin lines. The edge of the penny comes up to the skin line, but it never crosses the skin line. It just abuts the skin lines. Um, St. Louis has no shortage of syphilis. 
I don't know what your locations are like. I don't know that we're proud of that. It's just that we see plenty of it. So here are other late stages of syphilis. The systemic rash can mimic many things. Uh, Condylomalata is what we're showing in the middle in the picture to the right. For many years, the archives of dermatology was simply termed the archives of syphilology, and it slowly changed its name as uh, penicillin became a favor. But before, this was basically all of dermatology. It was syphilis. You name it, and it was syphilis, and it looked like anything we got now. And again, later stages of syphilis, gumma. Not that you're going to see this, but I think just to be complete and show you some images, because we don't get to show this all the time. Another image of an ulcer over the penis, and then you can see this enlarged swelling in the right inguinal crease over the lymph node basin. So similar, related, STD, this is chancroid. Uh, these ulcerations tend to be more painful, and then patients will oftentimes get a painful lymphadenopathy uh, adjacent to it. You can see the scaling in the web spaces, and again, scaling on the genitals. Any thoughts, any diagnostic tests that you might do in this scenario? So you'd probably scrape it. First you'd put gloves on, and then you'd scrape it. And so, again, common sites for scabies. Uh, the genitals are on that list, the web spaces, the folds. This is, tends to be where the mites uh, accumulate. And if you look closely here, you should see one of the three things here, either the mite or the eggs or the scabala, which of course is just poop. Uh, but you should see something very characteristic. It should be dense, it should be opaque, it should not be bubbles. Don't overdiagnose bubbles. People overdiagnose bubbles when they do their KOH. Just remember, it should be opaque. And then last but not least, enlarging erythematous rings on the trunk. You might have one, you might have multiple. They may be small, they may be big. So some of you see this all the time, and some of you may never see this, and it just depends on where you live. Um, but this is erythema chronica migrams, and so if you're in a state that is endemic uh, to Lyme disease, you will see this, but in Missouri, Ticks in Missouri don't have Lyme, so this is something I frequently lecture about because we don't see this all the time. So again, uh, for those that know about it, uh, the mite has to be present for at least 24 hours to get this eruption. You treat them with doxycycline. Um, these eruptions can become huge, but they take a good month or so to fade away. And just other images here and here. So take home pearls, just to wrap it up here, purpura, it means extravasated blood. Now it's your job to figure out why the blood is extravasated. Is it occlusive? Is it inflammatory? Are the blood vessels just leaky? Blisters. Could be inflammation. It could be an infection. It could be neither. So it's easy to check a herpes swab. Know which herpes swab you're checking. And then it's easy to biopsy. And if you're thinking autoimmune bullous diseases, remember that second container with the Michelle solution. When you biopsy blistering diseases, you biopsy the affected site for H&E, and you biopsy completely stone-cold normal skin for the direct immunofluorescence. You don't involve anything with the rash, just stone-cold normal skin right next to it for the DIF. Stevens-Johnson syndrome or toxic epidermal necrolysis, you'll see a really bad, severe hemorrhagic mucositis of the lips. If the lips are normal, they don't have it. And with dress, you'll see edema, and you'll see delayed consequences. So keeping that in mind, even when the patient looks normal, keeping an eye on them later as the eruption evolves. And then lastly, pustular eruptions. Maybe it's true pus and it's an infection. Maybe it's sterile pus and it's something else. So you have to think about those sterile pustular conditions to make that diagnosis, but also to uh, get out of that common wheel that we get stuck in uh, when, when we have trouble treating these patients. So I thank you for your time. I'll leave my email up here in case you guys have questions. And I'll step down if anyone has questions for afterwards. Thank you.